Hello. Greetings. Hello, my friends. How are you? Awesome. Doing good. That's good. That's good. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where even the loss of his voice from a cold can't stop the host from recording an intro. Welcome to a very special episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns, and the Lanterns who are going to be pretty prominent in the issues that we're going to be covering today. Well, he'll be prominent at the end of the issue, Mr. Kyle Rayner. And Guy Gardner, of course, will be covering him and Guy Gardner number 19. Why is this so special? Issue 50 was a turning point for the Green Lantern books. Uh, Hal Jordan had kind of gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He decided to rebuild Coast City. When that didn't work out for him, he decided to go back to Owen, trying to get as much power as he could to basically rewrite history. And, unfortunately, this history wasn't the one that was really supposed to be. But we'll get to that later in the story. Uh, because this is such an epic and special uh, episode, I brought on not one, but two amazing guests. The first guest you may know from previous episodes on the Just One of the Guys show. This is uh, He is the host of Better in the Dark with his best friend, Derek Ferguson. He's also host of DJ's Comics Cavalcade, and he's the uh, author at the site Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes, amongst, and uh, he's got a website, what, Welcome to Nocturne? Uh, uh, Nocturne Travel Agency. Nocturne Travel Agency. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Thomas DJ. And now, Sean, I was just walking outside, uh, and, you know, I live in a sleazy neighborhood, and this blue guy in a dress shows up and says, here, take this. Uh, I'd take it. You know, why? Why not? What, could, what bad could happen to you? I have no idea. It's not like I have a girlfriend that somebody could, I don't know, stuff in a refrigerator or something. Oh, you went there already. Thank you. <laughs> and our other our other special guest, and by special, I really do mean this, because he's one of the people who, who basically got me into listening to uh, comic book podcasting, got me interested in comic books again. He hosts, well, I think I could list the shows that he doesn't host on the internet, easier than the number of shows that he hosts or is on. He's on From Crisis to Crisis, Bailey's Batman Podcast, Pad Smash, 
He works for the Two True Freaks website, myriads of podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Michael Bailey. Uh, <laughs> thank you. No, I was I was kind of worried there for a second. Anytime someone says, you know, my special guest, and I do mean special because, and I thought maybe it was, you know, I wore <laughs> hockey equipment but didn't play for a team. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm really sorry about that, Tom. I was really drunk last night, and some hobo ah. painted me up all blue, and somehow I found myself in Brooklyn it was because Shaq, I'm like. Well, you know, you know, you mumble things like, I want to see where Spike Lee grew up, and that just, you know. Well, this has taken a turn. <laughs> right. What did you think was going to happen? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've heard I, what we get together before. See, I, I, I was hoping that was going to happen for the next episode, and it was just going to be one bat guano crazy episode. But I thought, I, I guess I should have imagined. Now you're getting two. Congratulations. I'm very happy to have that. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a break here. We're going to plug in a couple of promos, as I usually do, for some awesome podcasts. Uh, I'll try and pick one of the myriad ones that Michael Bailey does. I don't know if I have any promos for that. I mean, I'll have to scour the internet to find them. But uh, once we get back from that, we'll come back to our coverage of Green Lantern number 50. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with a man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lame asses. I'm on a tauntaun. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait... What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. 
Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually. Because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. And we're back. So, uh, as we're going to skip emails this time, because this is such such an epic show, we're going to go ahead and head right into our coverage of Green Lantern number 50 which was cover dated uh, March 1994, with a release date on January 18th of 1994, a cover price of a whopping $2.95 US. This was a big issue, but still is cheaper than most comics out today. Sad. Canada got the short shrift with a $4 price tag, and UK got £2. The title was Emerald Twilight Part 3, The Future. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Romeo Tangal, colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Buganza, editor Kevin Dooley, and the cover artist was Kevin McGuire. Armed with the rings of the numerous lanterns he has defeated, Hal Jordan defiantly states that it's all going to end here, one way or another. His former instructor and longtime enemy Sinestro agrees, reveling in the irony of the situation. Hal tells Sinestro to get out of his way or he'll kill him, which Sinestro feels is an empty threat, since Hal has always been the hero. But this is not the Hal Jordan he used to know, as Hal blasts Sinestro with the power from all the rings. Shocked at how dark Hal has become, Sinestro goads his former trainee, saying that it wouldn't be a fair fight with him having all the rings. He says that by using them, he will never know if he was good enough to take down the Corrigarian Lantern. Hal scoffs at the arrogance and states that he'll make sure that Sinestro sees that his defeat would come to him without any crutches. The two engage in a brutal fight, with all the sparring verbally as well as physically, as the Guardians of the Universe look on. Eventually, the Lanterns stop ring-slinging and turn to bare-knuckle brawling. Hal finally overpowers Sinestro, and as the red-skinned rogue asks if Jordan has truly won, Hal clutches Sinestro in a headlock and snaps his neck. Battered, Hal walks slowly towards the central power battery, saying that there's no one left to stop him from taking all the power to make things right. Unfortunately for him, he's wrong on that count, as a ringless Kilowog punches the f*** out of the deranged Jordan. Kilowog says that Hal can't kill any more of the core, and Hal explains that he left the lanterns enough power to survive. But Kilowog is convinced, and he does his best to stop Hal, 
saying that he knows he's not evil like Sinestro, and that he can stop all of this. Hal retorts, No, I can't, and blasts the last survivor of Bolivac's Vic with a beam of emerald energy, burning the flesh from his bones, ending his life. Kneeling before the smoking corpse, Hal says that he crossed the line, and now there is no turning back. He takes the ring from his finger and tosses it aside as he slowly ascends the steps leading to the central battery. But before he can reach his intended destination, Hal is confronted one last time by the Guardians. They tell Jordan that to tamper with the past is the most grievous crime of all. Hal says he knows that, but he's beyond caring. What he's doing can't be stopped, either by the Guardians or himself. And with that, Hal enters the central battery. The Guardians now see that all their work is lost, but Ganthet, the young hippie Guardian, feels that there must be something else to be done. But others agree and channel their last remaining amount of power into him as the central battery explodes in a flash of emerald energy. The dust settles, and where the hub of the Green Lantern Corps stood looms the transformed Hal Jordan. The former Lantern walks past the smoldering bodies of the Guardians until he senses the last presence of the green energy not his own. He flies to the spot where he dropped his ring, the former symbol of his heroism, and crushes it under his boot. His task completed, Jordan flies off for parts unknown. Luckily, Hal did not sense the energy of Ganthet, the last surviving guardian, who crawls from underneath the bodies of his deceased brethren. Saying that he will not let the symbol of all that they were be forgotten, Ganthet reconstitutes the ring and heads out to find a new champion. Of course, what he does find is the young man from the end of issue 48, who has just stepped out of the local dance club to get a breath of fresh air. Ganthet hands the man the ring, saying that he must do what he must with it. Wondering if he got a bad hit of ecstasy, the young man watches the blue imp vanish in a burst of green light. Not certain what all this means, the man puts on the ring and realizes that his life has just gotten a bit more complicated, as now he has become the last Green Lantern in the universe. And that is Green Lantern number 50. Uh, gentlemen, which one of you would want to go first? Mike? <laughs> We're both so polite. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and go first. Okay. Um, this is one of those uh, weird issues as I followed, uh, as, as Thomas and I talked about on a couple of occasions on Views from Longbox, uh, I followed Green Lantern kind of sporadically as it was coming out, the series anyways. Um, so I actually didn't read this particular story until, man, probably about a year or two after it came out. Uh, because DC released a, um, so I, I hesitate to call it a trade paperback because it's like three issues. Mm-hmm. It was uh, just a 48, 49, and 50, wasn't it? Yeah, Um and that's more of a collected edition, but that's getting into labels, and who cares? Uh, so the the issue we're going to be discussing in the next issue was actually the first new issue of Green Lantern I had read in a long time. But I'd always been curious about this particular one, because it was something that 
Well, I can't even say it's something that everybody was talking about because my head, I was kind of the ostrich of comic collecting at this point. Yes, I went to the shop on a semi-regular basis, and yes, I tried to uh, started reading Wizard magazine around this time, <clears throat> but uh, I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea that they were going to be doing this to Hal Jordan. And in all honesty, when I first read the issue. I didn't really have a strong connection to Hal beyond, hey, there's the dude that I read about in Emerald Dawn, and he was on the Super Friends. So it's kind of interesting how my perception of this story has changed over the years, but also at the same time how detached I am about it uh, because I don't have a strong stake in the character. I can look at it kind of dispassionately. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say overall is that Hal got screwed. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. And and it's 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 I'm not blaming anybody because one, this was, you know, twenty years ago, pretty mm-hmm. much almost. And two, I, I've gotten to the point uh where I think anybody in the creative media, you know, that that's in a creative medium that is producing for a mass audience has a really thankless job. Sometimes they're just really bad at it, but I think sometimes people make decisions because it seems like a really good idea at the time. And and I think Emerald Twilight was one of those, well, it seemed like a really good idea at the time, because let's face it, Green Lantern as a title, I'm not talking sales, I'm not talking public perception, I'm just talking the title itself really was kind of eking along. Gerard Jones had largely, in my opinion, run out of steam mm-hmm. uh, by this point. I mean, you know, you, you, you deal with a character for 50 issues, you know, you need a kick in the pants. I mean, that's true for any creators. Look at the Superman books. Dan Jurgens, who I love as an artist and a writer, was on the Superman books for 10 years, and by the end there, it was obvious that, you know, some new blood was kind of needed. However, there are good ways and bad ways to do this. And I think that I'm so torn on this because I don't like what they did to Hal. And yet, I like what the result of that was. Mm -hmm. And so I feel kind of bad about talking bad about Emerald Twilight. But on the other hand, there are portions of it that are just... There, It was too much way too soon. Yes, you want to have Hal deal with the ramifications of Coast City. There's no question of that. You have to, you know, they, they blew up his hometown. But to have him go this crazy, and I think one of the things of this issue, especially when you get into the beginning of it, uh, is they're going so far over the bend to, you know, it's so hitting you hard that Hal's not a hero anymore. And, it, you know, that's that's true on page four when Sinestro goes, don't demean yourself by engaging in charades, Jordan. Nothing ever changes. You're still a hero, one of the good guys. And he goes, not right now. And they start fighting. Now... If we're going to look at this from, okay, it happened, let's try to make the best of it, you know, having him go up against Sinestro like this was actually kind of cool. Well, it, uh, was, it was the best way for them to sort of finalize it. If you're going to have your uh, your villain, your your hero turn into a villain, you need to have an epic battle between the two most recognizable 
uh, combatants in the in the story. And Sinestro and Green Lantern, they're they are like the Lex Luthor and Superman. They're like the Joker and Batman. They are the characters that you recognize being, if not the polar opposites, but at least the most antagonistic to each other. Especially when you consider that Sinestro became a villain for precisely what Hal is supposed to be doing right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Taking over too much power for personal gain. So it, it makes sense that this Dark Mirror, especially in this context, is the last opponent, is the final boss, if you will. Oh, yeah. In this big video game of a... Of a well, we'll get to that in a minute, yeah. <laughs> the... Um... What I did like about the the conflict wasn't so much the fight itself, which was kind of cool, because I think Daryl Banks uh, really brought a freshness to the constructs. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, like, the shield Hal forms on page 7 that has kind of a goat head on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just... That's an interesting design. I mean, you really don't... You didn't really... It's not that you never saw anything like that. It's just you hadn't seen it in a really long time. But the but I con- think that's why... Uh, Kyle becomes uh, a graphic artist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to to give Daryl Banks the ability to just go crazy and come up with all these very elaborate designs that he comes up with for the constructs. Yeah, because we'll awesome. definitely see that. We'll definitely see the the artwork for the constructs become incredibly detailed once Kyle does it. But the conversation between the two, especially on page nine, is. I love that it's all a callback to Emerald Dawn 2, basically. Like, this is uh, not Gerard Jones, because he didn't write this, obviously, but it's kind of coming full circle with this version of Sinestro, where a couple years ago we showed you his beginning, <clears throat> and now we're showing you his end, but we're calling back to that beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Mars made the best of a really bad situation yeah. with this issue. Can we agree it, that there are two other people who are screwed in all this, namely Gerard Jones and Ron Mars? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. because Ron Mars gets the tag of he's the one that ruined Green Lantern, quote-unquote, especially by the members of Heat. Yeah. Uh, I'm well, not. Let's name the person who did destroy Green Lantern. It was Kevin Dooley. Yeah, he's the one that decided. Mm-hmm. He was the editor at the time. Now, did he do it because he hated the character? No, I think... you know. <laughs> This I think he was weird... looking at the the death of Superman and the Nightfall money and saying, "I want some of that too." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you know, they 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 kind of went along with all of the because Nightfall was not a reaction to the death of Superman because those two storylines came out so close together yeah. that you couldn't rush something on the scale of Nightfall, especially with how they set Nightfall up mm-hmm. with Sword of Azrael. And the vengeance of Bane, and like the six months of books that led up to Nightfall, you know, you you it, you can't say I hate it when people say that Nightfall was just the Bat people wanting to do their death of Superman. I think it was two camps wanting to do something large around the same time, and Superman just happened to be the first one to come out. This and what happened to Wonder Woman? Oh God, yes, the Bratz Diana. Yeah, we're were a very were, were a clear reaction to both of those. <laughs> you can sit, you can make that argument with Emerald Dawn because it's very obvious, especially since it came after one, especially since it came after uh, 
Reign of the Superman ended, and two, uh, and it's something that Thomas uh, reminded me of this morning in an email, they had solicited an entirely different Green Lantern 48. Yeah. Uh, and there was a whole other story that was planned that they scrapped and did this. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? Uh, the idea was behind that, because... Let's, yeah, let's, go ahead. Let's go into that, since Michael's opened up that Pandora's box. Yeah, um... There was an entire story written by Gerard Jones. And that's why, when I was listening to, I was at the uh, number episode forty-seven of just one of the guys, and you were talking about how rushed that last issue seemed. Jones, I was nodding my head because Jones had planned to go and for, further, and his idea was that Hal was going to lead a rebellion against the Guardians, and there was going to be this big civil war that was going to result in a leaner, meaner, just um, Justice League, leaner, meaner Green Lantern Corps with a new dedication of purpose. But Mr. Dooley apparently felt, and I'm trying to remember the quote directly, it was too boring. <sighs> and all of a sudden, Gerard was out. And in comes Ron Mars. I think this is probably his first, if it's not his first comic book work it's one of his first big titles yeah he had written silver surfer yeah. before this yeah i okay. think he'd done some work on silver surfer and yeah it, that's why they brought him over i guess for green lantern because he had kind of, of a cosmic, cosmic head yeah. yeah and you can kind of see it in, in the, these issues and also in the issue that we're going to cover in the next episode that he's kind of like swimming around trying to figure out how to how to dog paddle if you will mm-hmm. in this new pool and there's a you can see this in, in the dialogue and the storyline, he's, he's doing the best he can, and I think that it's commendable that what we end up getting from him once he's settled in is something really cool. I'm sure we all agree with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. But Definitely. because of Kevin Dooley, he got pilloried for years. And there are still comic fans who will never forgive him for this when it's not... He was... Forgive me for do it using using a Nazi phrase. He was only following orders. No, oh. well, no, he was and told, this is what you got to do. This is what we want you to do. This is the, the new guy. I think the, the I think that the idea was, while Kyle wasn't fully formed, I think Kyle was already part of the package when Ron stepped in. Hmm. Yeah, I think they wanted a new Green Lantern, younger, hipper, ninety, uh, younger. <laughs> yeah, and, you can, and dear God, they got him. And you can um, see in the first uh, couple of issues how, especially the issue we're going to be covering next time, how he really isn't very formed. He's just basically this sort of young Turk, and he's uh, you know not really taking it seriously. And uh, eventually it's great to see what he'll grow into, because he really does become a really interesting Lantern. And like you said, this is it's sad that it ended on this way, but it's great that it gave us the character of Kyle, which is yeah. really an enjoyable. You know, it character. really bothers me when people say that Ron Mars hated Hal Jordan. Yeah, that bugs me too because has it's we not... get... I'm sorry, Mike, I'm sorry. It's not true at all. Yeah, as we go further down into the Kyle Rayner uh, era, and maybe Sean, you'd like to have me on again to oh. talk about one of the one of the uh, returns of Hal. Are you kidding? He's incredibly respectful and has a real understanding of what made Hal tick prior to all this wackiness. Mm-hmm. And it's it's surprising because at the time, uh, you know, he's 
And I know we'll be coming up to that here in a while, and you'll be coming up to it as well, Michael, in your coverage of the Zero Hour stuff, mm-hmm. that we're going to realize that Hal is perhaps you know, the ultimate baddie. He's, he's, a, he's a DC version of Thanos. You know, he's trying to remake the universe. And uh, we haven't really discovered why he's that way. Uh, fortunately, he who should not be named decided to give him a reason why he was. But, um, yeah, it's it's disappointing. The um, Looking at the fight, looking at how the story plays out, uh, one of the things that kind of annoys me, and, and, I, and I didn't really notice this until I, until I started doing podcasts and you have to, and you're looking at the issues a little closer on page seven and page nine, we have a statted image of the, the guardians watching, mm-hmm. uh, at the top. And that bugs me. Um, I don't know why, uh, I, I realize it's probably easier to do that because it's pretty much probably a similar pose and it leaves the writer free to not have to draw that again, but they like to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you I think, think like the, them and, and like Watu and his bunch get together <laughs> and ex- do like kind of like a porn exchange. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, and they they have the the, the ultimate if the cosmic uh, you know cosmic <laughs> goes down, they go and clean up their porn stash because you know Watu Watu has stuff that makes <laughs> look like you know like kindergarten uh, stuff. So okay, explicit tag. <laughs> You're the one who dropped the f bomb earlier, so well, you can. I'm gonna bleep that out. I don't, I don't yeah, know. you can bleep what I said out too, okay. and it'd be funnier actually. <laughs> um, I do like that when it gets down to it, these two finally just go hand to hand. Just two people that hate each other, mm-hmm. and uh, there are impersonal ways of killing people and personal ways of killing people. And if Hal had killed Sinestro with his ring, like he does with Kilowog later in the issue, it wouldn't have felt as personal as him breaking his neck. It's like, you know, strangling somebody, you know, there's a lot of hate there Mm -hmm. because you had, you know, you literally have your hands around somebody's neck and here, you know, he just takes him out and he says, I should have done this a long time ago. And I love that Sinestro's last words are, you probably should, and then he just doesn't even let him yeah. finish. Well, you know um, what it is. It's, you know, breaking somebody's neck or strangling them. It takes a lot of energy on your part. Yeah. As opposed to just pointing a gun and shooting, which is what he would have been, he does with Kilowog, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, at least for me, even though that the scene, well, the scene of him breaking his neck, you don't really see anything graphic. All you see is the the image crack. of the word crack. Yeah. But the next image, uh, the next image on the page is uh, Sinestro lying there with his head turned around and Hal walking away. And it's, it's pretty creepy, but also uh, the, the image of Hal uh, killing Kilowog is actually more graphic because you yes. see him being burned away. And that's, uh, I don't know if that's some sort of statement on the, uh, on the writer about you know the use of weaponry or the use of uh, you know the, the ver, you know the the physical form the physical act of killing someone you know like breaking their neck versus the act of using a weapon like the ring or a gun or something but it the the Kilowog death was a, a much more graphic and yeah. but yes the Sinestro death does have a lot more personal impact now 
what I also like, and it's really weird using that term in this story, but what I really like about after he kills Kilowog, not that he kills Kilowog, because, man, they, they five, six years after this, they kind of undid that as quickly as they could. Uh, he Not only does he throw his ring away, he's not wearing his mask anymore. Yeah. And I like that because it's basically him shedding himself of everything that he was. Now, I will bring up the the the, the thing they never talk about, kind of like Clark Kent's glasses, is he takes off the ring and he's still wearing a uniform. Yeah. That's all torn up, like it's cloth, mm-hmm. which it's not. But, uh, or it shouldn't be, I guess. Well, I guess you can argue that since he's on Oa, there's like a field... Oh, okay, I could of I could, some I could sort. That. That's how there's I... a good no prize. Yeah, I was about to say. Um, the guardians are completely ineffectual, but I think most of the time the guardians are completely ineffectual. Uh, so it's this like is the not Mr. a Mister Weatherby's of the DC universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the thing with them though uh, is we get Ganthet, and I think if I am correct, this is Ganthet's first appearance or named appearance. Well, uh, unless you want to include the. Uh whole Ganthet's Tale thing that they did, which was that one-off yeah. uh, story that... I had uh, forgotten. Kind of... You see, I knew there was something I was forgetting. It's just my Green Lantern timeline is not as solid as other characters. Oh, no problem. I think that occurred... Oh, that occurred around the issue 40s. Maybe the late 30s, early 40s. But it sort of tied in something with uh, Crisis and this uh, Guardian who tried to stop Krona from... Uh, creating the crisis, which led to another problem, which it, it, it's all big-headed Larry Niven uh, sci-fi wackiness. Uh, nice art by uh, John Byrne, though, but yeah. But the thing about Ganthet is uh, I like Ganthet. I like what Ganthet would become uh, in his... In the, I, I think people think he has more appearances than he does. What I don't like is because Ganthet is named here, people, uh, Christopher Priest in particular, will retcon him earlier into the Green Lantern lore. There's a series of novels that Christopher Priest wrote, one of which was a Golden Age Green Lantern novel, which was fantastic, actually. Uh, But in the one before that, they did a flashback to the time of Hal and Ollie being the hard-traveling heroes, and he had Ganthet as the Guardian with them. Bugged the crap out of me. Yeah, because that was... uh... Mad Guardian. Yeah, Aliapa Apsa or whatever. Ali Ali Oxenfree? Yeah, that one. <laughs> I was about to say Mechalekal Hoffman. But... <laughs> um, you know, the the guy that, that became a biker and then went crazy? I mean... <laughs> As most bikers do. Um, but yeah, really I watched Sons tru- of Anarchy. Yeah, true. But really and truly, they... They let this all happen. Mm-hmm. This is, we can really place, I mean, I'm not trying to take any personal responsibility away from Hal Jordan because I'm not Jeff Johns. And boom goes the dynamite. But, <laughs> zing. Um, and, and that's coming from somebody that likes a lot of what Jeff Johns did with Green Lantern, but still, that was one of the things that I was just like, okay, you explained that, but come on. But, it, the Guardians not dealing with Hal the way they should have led to all of this. And... For all powerful beings, they are pretty much useless throughout this entire storyline. And 
they, you know, it's just like, are we going to just let him do that? Yeah, we got to. Kevin Dooley said so. So, you know, that, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, page 26, we have the piece of art that is probably the most expensive of what Daryl Banks ever sold. Um, yeah. You know... And it's a nice piece of art. It's a really detailed I'm, I'm gonna, background. I'm going to sell this at a convention one day. <laughs> and, and I'm not begrudging him that because... God knows as much, you know, as short a lives as most comic book artists have in the grand scheme of things. If they can make some good money off of their artwork in the secondary market, more power to them. But here's the thing, and this has always bugged me in comic books. You have this really great shot of him, of Hal as Parallax. No cape, because, you know, apparently Edna Mole, uh, you know, had, had to do with the design originally. And... Yeah. And we have that, you know, it's like, you know, his hands are glowing and he looks all sinister and he's got a new hairstyle and all that. It's that damn signature that just takes me out of the story. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. The, the, the weird thing on his chest that that looks sort of like a... No, no, weird... no, no, no. The Daryl Banks, oh, Romeo Tangal, the... 1994. Uh, yeah, the, basically saying that, hey, this was supposed to be, you know, this was supposed yeah, this to be something you could cut up. Yeah, you can cut out of this book and pin up on your wall, kids. Um, it looks a little Charlie Sheenish here, actually, in the face. I, I will say this, though, for Daryl Banks as an artist, and, and I'm sure, you know, he, he was relatively new at this time, and, you know, you have a veteran inker in Romeo Tangal, you know, working over him, he had a really good sense of storytelling right from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and that re- that shows on page 27, because there's no dialogue, but you get everything you need to get from what's going on. The stepping of the ring is really that final, I'm walking away from this. Now, one thing I want to ask on page 27, do you think it was just because of the explosion of the battery that the Guardians are all laying there with uh, smoldering holes in their chest? Do you think that Hal actually did this off-panel and he actually killed the Guardians? I think it's the result of the explosion. Yeah. Um, my thought is, that was my thought as well, but I just thought it was odd that they would all be there with similar smoldering holes in their chest. Well, well he ripped I, their I hearts thought out. it was that they, they <laughs> basically channeled their energy into Ganthet so that he could then... Yeah pass on the so that they were already kind of corpses at the time that the at this point unnamed bad green lantern guy mm-hmm. uh comes out of the battery uh pages 28 29 ganthet is obviously in shock from having to dig himself out of the bodies of his uh compatriots um wow that's creepier than i ever really thought about until i was doing the show that's because like- that's like a daily thing on Walking Dead Wednesday. They're yeah. taking themselves out of corpses and covering themselves with goo all the time. But it's also, I think, kind of like a reference to a lot of war stories. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of, uh, you know, going back to World War One, Mm-hmm. Or even the Civil War. I mean, when, yeah. when people were... It's like Gettysburg. More people died of snake bites than actually getting shot by a musket. So, um... The uh, the ending. It, it, we're gonna we're gonna get into this next episode. I know, and my and I am and I am a defender of the '90s. I think I've made a mark being the guy that says that the '90s, you know, get a really bad rap. Uh, however, I will uh, look at things rationally as well. And 
Kyle is so stereotypical early <laughs> slacker '90s guy that I mean, especially in the next issue, it's he not might even. He'll be playing bass for Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> I was I was about to say. I mean, I mean, and he's wearing a Nine Inch Nails shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's going to the Heretic Club. Uh, you know, he, he has yeah. to. Uh, you I'm know, surprised he, he wasn't about... going out to the alley to score some ecstasy or something. Yeah, I mean, I, like... he's just like, and and here is why. I think a lot of people didn't like Kyle, uh, not only just because of what happened, but didn't like Kyle. Because let, let's look at Kyle, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. He walks into the job. It isn't that he's without fear. It's not that he's a legacy character. He just happened to need some air, and he gets the most powerful weapon in the universe, one. Two, he's kind of a pretty boy. And three, within short order, he not only nails Wonder Girl, but also Jade. True. <laughs> this is the guy that's a nice guy, but you hate anyways, just because, you know, it seems like he gets everything for free. Now, having said that, I love Kyle to death, and I think he really oh. developed into a strong character. Uh, but this ending is actually, in a way, kind of cool, because it really is a 90s way of doing a superhero origin. It it's just happens. the green lantern that could be you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he and also it's... it's it, it, yeah, it's, I was going to say that. It also is a kind of 60s way because it's Spider-Man as well. He's just some kid who uh, suddenly got, you know, this magical power. And now he can do these things to save well, lives. Let's let, let's be fair though. Peter Parker was a genius science student, and Kyle can draw. <laughs> so you know, the funny thing is, because this was done, all, all this this presto change was done at the last frickin' minute. They could have solved this problem very easily, because uh, there was that whole storyline that, that that Gerard Jones was doing about he's going to start his own company, and <laughs> companies need logos, mm-hmm. and they need. Stationary, and they need other things that need graphic designers for. Hmm, where it are you would going? not have been that difficult to have introduced Kyle earlier mm-hmm. and gotten us kind of used to because I think that was the biggest problem. Mike is right, is that hey, it, here's a kid, now he's Green Lantern. And, and I think a lot of the, the problem also uh, is all of the hype surrounding this and the interviews done in like wizard and such were, we're getting rid of all that silly stuff, all that stuff that just didn't work. We're uh-huh. going to the future. You know, that, that whole concept of the core, that's stupid boxing gloves. That's stupid. We're not doing that. In fact, he can't use the same construct twice, you know, and if he would have done that, you know, we're going in a kind of different direction. We want to move away from the boxing gloves because we feel like the audience today probably might, might not respond to it as well. And we want to make the power is more creative. So he's yeah, not and, the same construct twice. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's all in how you present it to people. And unfortunately, most of the time in the excitement of getting something out, I think comic companies uh, to one degree or another so focus on how it's it's like when JL, Grant Morrison's JLA hit big in 96 even in 98 the message boards were rife with well at least it's not that silly Giffen De Mateus Justice League mm. like when people need to praise something new they have to bash everything that came before it uh, and, I, and I think Kyle suffers from that too 
But overall, I mean, it's 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 an engaging issue. It's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. The writing is strong. The artwork is fantastic. Uh, much better, I, I would say, than the Bill Willingham work from a couple issues before. And it, it, it felt Mars made the best of a bad situation to me. You know, he, he presented a story that was at least readable at, at, the, at the least and kind of engaging at the best. And uh, I really hate that we, we... This is another kind of F you to the fans, I think, and I hate to say that. We, we go through this whole thing of how we get rid of Hal and then have 16 pages of pinups... At the end, there are nothing yeah. how great Hal is. Yeah, <laughs> and there, to be honest, the the pinups, they also seem kind of rushed. It was like, oh, we've got to get something, and none of them is really epic. I'm looking at them right now, and the only one that really, the Stuart Immonen, Immonen, Immonen yeah, phenomenon, uh, you know, uh, looks pretty good, but the rest of them are just kind of subpar, yeah. especially the one by Joe Phillips. Uh, what the what the hell is that yellow thing? Hell, you know, chasing down Hal, and why is he running through the trench run? It's, it's the Star- realm of death. <laughs> I like uh, I like Paul Pelletiers, who would actually go on to draw a Green Lantern later. Uh, it's just like Hal, look at it, all the chicks he wants to nail or has <laughs> nailed in the past. Bang that one! Bang that one! Bang that one! Bang one! That one over there. That one I didn't even have to try. She came after me. <laughs> uh. That one made herself legal for me. <laughs> oh, God. That's right. I am the man. I got the game. <laughs> that was such a disturbing issue. Uh, oh, but... Not as disturbing as the origin of the Predator, but... Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to go back to, to Daryl Banks' artwork for a second. Sure. Well, I will definitely agree with, with, with Mike here that he has a great command of storytelling. This story... This, this issue flows effortlessly and we take a look compare this to what we're going to get in the next story we're going to talk about which is a lot more disjointed in terms of the visual storytelling but i think that his figure work is suffers a bit um i mean you look at his portrayal of sinestro and it's he's sinestro seems to change facially from panel to panel at some mm-hmm. cases and yeah, there's that's... that one I'm looking for a particular image where he looks like he's got a Pinocchio nose. Um, there's one where he's like holding a big ass gun. There it is. There it is at the bottom of nine. That oh yeah. Note, it just looks like he's just told a lie about being a Jets fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they got. I don't think Banks got the, uh, and I think the one thing that uh, messes Sinestro up for me is the fact that Sinestro has the Fu Manchu mustache rather than the Snidely Whiplash one. Uh, you know, the the, pen- <laughs> the pencil thin one works a lot better, and that's how I imagine Sinestro. But he's got this Fu There's Manchu one thing. Picture here on, on, on uh, page four, he looks like Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi would have made a great Sinestro. Oh, good God. Yes. I'm not kidding on that either. I'm really not. I think I think he would have made a really creepy, good Sinestro. Uh, I, I could agree with that. Well, he also made a good uh, Commissioner Gordon as well. <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, yes. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Anything else? Oh, yeah. No, I just... Um, 
it's obvious to me that, that this is two people who are rushing to get something done and they've got their boss looking over their shoulder, which makes it surprised that uh, Ron Mars didn't uh, thrive as well under the age of the Dio with the, with the DCNU. Um, but it's, like Mike said, it's the best of a very, very bad situation. I'm trying to think of a good comparison of when it's handled poorly. Um, I think the whole debacle with Stephanie Brown was handled very badly. Yes. Uh, Just in terms of what was presented to us and then what they did to the character. I'm not going to get into the whole argument of sexism and comics and stuff like that, because that's a whole can of worms. That's just not. We could get to that in a couple more episodes. Yeah. (laughs) But women in fridges. Yeah, but the thing is, is that sometimes you, you, you make decisions and you go through with it, and you just. But I guess that might be a bad comparison too, because I think it's pretty obvious that they were going to do that to Steph from the get go. That was the plan. That wasn't a last minute. You know, like nobody liked her as Robin, so we're pulling the plug on this. It's just okay, kind of like what happened when they decided. You know, Dan DiDio got all legacy characterific on us. And decided to make Bart the Flash. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah bad, and 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 all of that can be attributed to. And I hate to say this, but you know, a certain writer wasn't ready to write, to bring Barry back yet, so that they had they had to like, keep dancing. We got to get that Flash character out there. So, but what I, I think the legacy of this story though has been muddied because. I think they went out of their way. I mean, even though Hal would remind us every five minutes that he was Parallax, I think at the same time, the creators involved in Green Lantern from 2004 on did everything they could to try to, like, well, it wasn't his fault. And it's so much better when it is his fault. It's so much better that this is just him. If we're going to look at it purely on a story level, let's ignore fan reaction, let's ignore the rush nature of everything involved with the story, and let's look at the character itself. Here's a character that was taken as low as he can. His entire world was ripped from him. The only thing they could have done worse is kill Carol in terms of of Coast City. So then he snaps. He just has a psychological break. And he goes crazy and he becomes a complete sociopath and then becomes parallax and try and eventually does something that's even more epic than this. And it's so much better when it's just how just did it like I could accept that better than the cheat of he was possessed by possessed. some force. Yeah, that's always uh, been kind of a contention with me is it's it's a and someone has brought this up in letters, uh, especially going back to the Emerald Dawn thing, uh, that Hal then blamed the sign on him wrecking. It's just another thing that Hal is blaming his problems on rather than taking right. responsibility for him, for his own actions. For his own actions, exactly. It, it's kind of the same reason why the Ed Brubaker retro, uh, retrofit of the idea that Deathstroke was poisoning Terra all the time. Uh, was that Ed Brubaker or was that Brad Meltzer? Okay, I think it, I think it was. Okay, it was one or the other. It might have been might have been Meltzer. I'm sorry. 
no, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm second guessing myself here, sir. Yeah. <laughs> well, whoever it was, the guy who said, "Oh yeah, Deathstroke was poisoning Terra. That's what made her evil." That totally invalidated the whole point of the Judas contract, which mm-hmm. was sometimes people are no good. Mm-hmm. And then that's one of the also the point of contentions that goes along in the storyline and eventually goes up to the post two thousand four stuff, is that Hal does have a redemptive arc. And yeah. you kind of wonder, have to wonder, after doing all this and doing what he will do and trying to do what he will do, is is he capable of having a redemptive arc? And unfortunately, I think the only way that they could allow him to do that is to give him this out of saying, it wasn't your fault. It well, was something else. Is, I thought they did give him a redemptive arc that terminated it in Final Night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was consistent about how Hal is treated after at the, after this point is that Hal is believing he's doing the right thing. He still believes he's the hero of his own story, and that is the secret to writing a great villain. Exactly. Yeah, a good villain is always someone who believes that what they're doing is right. And I know, I just listened to your uh, episode of uh, Person of Interest, mm-hmm. and you uh, talked about that over at Better in the Dark, about how the greatest villains are always ones that believe what they're doing is for the better, for the greater good, is, is what they're doing is right. And that's what Hal is doing. And it's just so happens that he's trying to reshape the universe. So, and, and 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 it's one of those things where when you have this kind of tragedy and you're doing something and you've convinced yourself that this is, it's not so much that he's trying to be the hero here. He's just like I've got to, I've got to, I've got to right this wrong. But you're doing all these things. Doesn't matter. I, and he just keeps pushing forward and pushing forward. The thing about Emerald Knight that I, or Emerald Twilight that I don't think gets enough credit is that Hal's consistent throughout the story. And yeah, you can write him off as being kind of one-dimensional. I don't think that's it at all. Because uh, Mars takes a lot of time for him to have conversations with people talking about what's going on. If it was just him going on a tear through the Green Lantern Corps, uh, which I think this storyline gets unfairly tagged for, that would have been one thing. But it's just like, I remade Coast City, and they took that away from me, so I'm going after them. And these people are in my way, and I love you all to death, but there's something bigger going on. And, you know, you, you can take that to people destroying their own lives after tragedy. It's a, here, here's a good example of that. The Fisher King. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams' character in The Fisher King is homeless because his wife was killed and he couldn't handle it. So he made decisions along the way because he couldn't cope with his loss that he ended up homeless on the street and kind of crazy. You know, that's kind of what happened here. Unless I'm completely what... misremembering The Fisher King. No, that's... <laughs> That's right. And that's one other thing that Mars never lets us forget is how much pain Hal is in at this time. Mm-hmm. He is, I mean, right from that first, that that really good issue, that issue 48 that starts this Megilla, we learn he's, that he, we never lose sight of that fact. That this is a guy who's so overwhelmed with grief that he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, in issue 48, he's basically reconstructing he's trying to reconstruct his entire life including his family to try and get some semblance of order back in his life and 
that's all taken away by the Guardians, and I can understand how that might upset him a bit. If you look at the other thing that, that Mars does is he writes Hal consistently with what Gerard Jones was doing. If you look at that later half of the of the Gerard Jones run, Hal is pretty much, when it comes to his interpersonal relationships, a bit of a child. Mm-hmm. He's, no, I'll he, agree with that. He yeah. treats women in a very cavalier, very gratification-first way. And this is a child lashing out when Daddy comes and says, you can't play with your toys anymore. No, I, it I, just I, so happens this child ha- has the most powerful weapon in the universe on his finger. No, it that, it makes sense. Yeah, he's... That's one of the things that, that I do agree Hal has had problems with. It is definitely women and his relationship with them. Uh, he's never, and that's something Jones talked about a lot in the issues and sort of switched off with. Uh, prior to this, he was having the thing going on with Olivia Reynolds, mm-hmm. which he thought was supposed to be his whoopee, and uh, Carol Ferris popping the question of wanting to get married and him, Hal, sort of balking at that. So there was a lot of there was a lot of trouble with him settling in with any one female character. So I can, I can agree with your point on that. And look at the, the, the one person, the first person that he gets quote unquote absolution from in, in issue number 48. Yeah. His first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely more. Mars should get a lot. I mean, should get a lot of credit for keeping this character consistent, even when he's being asked to do this really bizarre thing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not like, but it's almost like the writers that came in in the late '60s after DC kind of forced the old guard out because they wanted healthcare. Um, and, and we're talking about organizing. Uh, you know, those those guys came in and did great work, but had no idea that the only reason that they were being hired at the moment was that you know they were kind of unintentional scabs uh, in a way. And here, I'm sure Mars wasn't aware of any of the backfighting and the behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, he's a, he's, he's a writer. And these guys, you know, somebody offers you a gig, a regular gig, and then says you get to recreate a character. You know, here's the outline, here's the basics, you fill in the blanks. I mean, I, I would have jumped at the chance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I... It's this fan mentality, and we've discussed this many times in the past, that everybody wants to blame the wrong person. You know, they want to. You know, they're shooting the messenger, basically. Right. And I think that's just. I I, I think it's wrong-headed. And yeah, that comes from me being a fan of Kyle, and that being the first Green Lantern I ever got to know. So that's my perspective of it. So take that for what you will, but having learned as much as I have about the history of Green Lantern and the history of Hal Jordan and specifically, and have grown such an appreciation for that character, you know, it, you know, I see both sides on this, but in the end, I think that the Hal fanatics, the heat people were just way over the top with their hatred of everything. I mean, it's almost like, you know, you (laughs) read, One of the most annoying things I ever read in in the 90s was an interview with, with Alex Ross, who said, yeah, this is the only time I drew Kyle Rayner, you know, get the message, DC, bring Hal back. And it's just like, wow, just, okay, that's fine. 
boss. <laughs> I'm not going to open up that can of worms, so I'm backing off. <laughs> Put the Alex Ross special down and step away from the magazine. So I guess you won't be coming on for my uh, coverage of justice, will you, Tom? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, um, you guys basically covered... Uh, pretty much everything I had to say about the book. I'm uh, sorry. Well, no, no, no. Uh, no, you guys, this is why I wanted to have you on, because you guys uh, are incredible talkers, and you get to the point probably a bit more succinctly than what I would, so I appreciate it. Uh, Tom, do you have anything else to add, or anything else you want to talk about the book? No, no, we can then. Uh... Well, then, let's let's move on to the <laughs> the, the uh, bit less depressing and a bit more goofy covered uh, issue of Kai Gardner number 19 right after we take this break. 90s. I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen. By the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? 
Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Yappa, Yongari, and Giyawa. We cover everything, from movies, to comic books, to video games. And we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we are back. So let's go ahead and get to the 90s and... Get to Guy Gardner number 19. It's the 90s, Jake. It's the 90s. <laughs> Guy Gardner number 19 was cover dated April 1994 with a release date of March 1st, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, 2 bucks Canada, and 70p UK. Title was Emerald Fallout Part 2, The Big Frosty. Mm, I could use a big frosty. I love Wendy's. Uh, the writer was Chuck Dixon. Pencilers were Mitch Bird and Brad Gorby. The inker was Dan Davis. Color, colorist was Stuart Shaffitz. Letter was Albert Guzman. Assistant editor was Eddie Baganza. And editor was Kevin Dooley. The cover artist was Tom Rainey this time out. Staring skyward, an armored Guy Gardner grimaces as the monologuing mercenary militia flies towards him, landing a left hook to Guy's jaw. The two tussle, quipping on the while until a militia leases a wrist-mounted machine gun which plows through Guy's armor. With the systems failing and the exosuit Guy borrowed from Blue Beetle, Guy braces himself for the end, until Tora wakes from her dazed state and flings militia over the horizon. Tora heads over to check on Guy, who is asking who their attacker is. Guy says he has no clue, and Tora flies off to find out for herself, much to Guy's chagrin. Meanwhile, the battered and bruised militia radios into his quorum handlers, demanding that they divert maximum power to his system. The team leader says that it's too big of a risk, and the and militia counters that if they don't, he, along with all the quorum technology, will end up in the hands of the Justice League. Back with our heroes, Guy is doing his best to keep up with Ice. With all, all the armor systems breaking down, he's having a tough time with it. Finally, he reaches the top of the hill, only to see Tora being blasted by a barrage of burning ballistics. There's my Stanley information. Guy runs to his down-loved side and cradles her wounded body as Militia rises up behind him, ready to finish them off. Guy hefts Tora in a fireman's carry and dashes away from the war machine's blast, only to hit a weak part of the glacier and fall into the Arctic waters. Ice's natural defenses kick in, encasing her in a protective block of ice, but Guy isn't so lucky. Crawling from the freezing water, his armor near powerless, Guy tells his foe to skip the cliched send-offs and just get to it. Militia obliges, tearing off his mask to reveal the man who has, who has spent all this time trying to kill Guy Gardner is none other than his supposedly dead brother, Mace. Dun, dun, dun. 
Shocked by the revelation, Guy does his best to defend against his brother's onslaught, but it's too late. Battered, armor all but gone, and near frostbitten, Guy comes to terms with his fate, until a strange alien language emanates from his ring, meaning it's charged up again. Guy channels his inner Super Saiyan and releases an ultra-mega King Kamehameha blast, blowing up Militia real good. Under the ice, the Quorum sub heads back to base as the female leader says that Militia is lost and they'll have to look for a new enforcer. On the ice, Tora and Guy get Mace's backstory, explaining how the Quorum faked his death and gave him the power suit, a suit that was supposed to make him the hero, the hero that Guy turned out to be. But before Guy can use his recharged ring to get them all to safety, the trio is met by the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, who says Guy has to come with him as the fate of the universe is at stake. Tom, being the guard, the Guy Gardner fan, I'm going to go ahead and let you uh, head off with this. Oh, God. The I, I, I feel an evisceration the, coming. The, okay, first off, can anything be more freaking 90s than that, for, that opening splash panel? Um, a busty blonde with a plunging neckline kind of stretched out in a way that is kind of artistically cheesecake. Mm-hmm. And a goofy guy with armor. No, I don't think you could get any more 90s, but... Um, pouches. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I do like the CD players that he's got on both... <laughs> did, did Guy not look at the armor that, that, that Blue Beetle made for Booster Gold and say, Nah, I don't think so. Uh, you got anything better? <laughs> I, I admit, I... I, I... I've never gotten any feedback from anyone else. I like Dan da- or Mitch Bird and Dan Davis's art, especially I like the way that he draws the female form. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Ice here is very cheesecake, and uh, he does the same thing with Wonder Woman later in the next issue. Oh, wait till we get to Arisa, though. Oh, uh, you, God. you know what's the most disappointing thing about Tora though is Adam Hughes got to redesign her costume and fires costume uh in the pages of justice league america and you know fire you know as a model and as and to sound really stereotypical as a brazilian uh you know kind of had her tits in your face um but even when hughes drew it it wasn't sleazy you know it, it kind of worked when my wife just went, uh-huh um, <laughs> with Torah. He kind of went in the complete opposite direction. Yeah. He had her pretty much covered from head to toe, which fit with the character because she was kind of mousy and um, 
and introverted. And it but also thi- fits with the character's power set. Yeah. But here's the thing. With the outfit he gave her, which was basically kind of a skin-tight outfit with a little, like... Um, half shirt? Was, half shirt. Uh, like a... Uh, like a I can't think... I, I don't want to call it a wife beater, but that's It was like an aerobics kind of top. Yeah. Um, he kind of made her sexy without showing anything. Mm-hmm. Because it just looked kind of... You know, because it, it was form-fitting, and it's what you didn't see that made the character kind of alluring. You know, because she's one of these characters that's kind of a prude, but has a big rack, so there's that, you know, that, that disconnect there. Like, you would expect her to show it off, but she doesn't. In fact, probably wants to hide it. And they got rid of all of that here. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, it's so disappointing, because it's not even a good costume. No, it's, it's really generic. not effective. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is that. And they also gave her a generic power set. Hey, guess what? You're really strong. Yeah, it worked better when she was just the person, you know, who was essentially a female version of Iceman. She could manipulate ice. Mm-hmm. But This f***ing armor. Oh, my God. <laughs> it looks like something that, that, that uh, a 12-year-old who just got his first copy of Champions, the Champions <laughs> online game oh, God. would put together. I just bought a bunch of GURPS uh, source books, and I'm going to design me a character. Uh, and it's really a ridiculous fight. I mean, just them blasting each other. There's the fight that they had with Sinestro and uh, the, the, the Sinestro and Hal had in the last issue was really good, but uh, this one just ridiculous. However, however, I do like on. Uh, Oh, God, the pages aren't numbered. Well, no, I guess it's page five, mm-hmm. where a uh, guy retorts to uh, Militia, saying that Melissa... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that you ought to have a real man's name. <laughs> I know a lot of good monikers are taken, but Melissa? <laughs> I love... See, I I love Guy... I love mm-hmm. Guy's snappy comebacks, and mm-hmm. calling the guy Melissa is just awesome. Oh, my gosh, and... Uh, what is up with Militia's outfit? Can we say overtly busy? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of... It's like the world's worst cable cosplayer. <laughs> well, the, he got the cable costume down, but he thought, no, that's not bright enough. I need to add oranges and yellows and reds and blues. Uh, Do we ever see the quorum after this? I know it's mentioned... Um, Oh, I think it's mentioned later in the uh, Guy Gardner series, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's really... I think it may be brought up uh, with uh, Guy's clone, and I think Guy's clone uh. actually becomes a, um, a a member of the Quorum, or he's... But yeah, they're, they're kind of a... They're kind of a one-off group that really hasn't been I, talked about anyway. You know what I love about this group more than anything, and you kind of know that maybe the writer and the artist were having some fun. On page nine, you have the the one panel showing the blonde, you know, on her headset, and then you have the next panel of her looking kind of angry from the side. And you have the two guys in the in the front kind of giving each other like, the, I don't know what's going on, do you? And I think that's, I honestly think that's a representation of Mitch Bird and Chuck Dixon in this story. <laughs> And, 
and it and it's only a it 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 shows what a great writer Chuck Dixon is that he can take this kind of all the generic stuff that you know they're trying to copy from Image and from Liefeld and his group, and he takes it and he makes it something kind of fun to read. Like on page thirteen, you know, it's just like okay, Gardner, yeah, yeah, let me fill in the blanks. Your butt is grass and I'm the mower. Yeah. Adios, muchacho. This is where the rubber meets the road, and it's just like. <laughs> Like, I I know that we're doing things here that are very stereotypical, so I'm going to tell you they're stereotypical and thus take the take the you know the piss out of the argument. Mm-hmm. You could definitely tell that this is uh this is in the era where the editors are starting to dictate to the writers what they want. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that this is probably why Chuck Dixon didn't la- didn't last beyond this issue. I think he was like I've done it. I can't do it anymore with you guys. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's disappointing because in the next issue we get um, Bo Smith to come out on the issue, and he he really infused. Uh, I think he was also a person who got the character of Guy Gardner really well. Yeah, and well, he I'll be had talking a, a lot about uh, you know, Bo Smith. And, and Bo he Smith he, he had a uh, you know he had a great idea to, of what to do with the character, but unfortunately, I think he got stymied again. By editorial as well, and we'll you get know to that. It would be cool if Guy could make big guns with his arms. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just just wait till what that. About just knives, like, big guns. <laughs> big guns that shoot guns! plasma. Guns. But you know, to to be fair, we we poke fun at it because, frankly, it deserves it. But this is this is what was selling. I mean, they wouldn't have chased the trend if it didn't make somebody money. So there, you know, I, I, I'm just, this is why I defend the nineties because everybody wants to, you know, paint this generic brush of this is how it was just because it's what everybody wanted to do. And that's not the case. You know why there were so many teenage hero teams in the eighties? It's because the teen Titans were popular, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> the, and yeah, some of the, some of the, the copies of that were better than the copies of the stuff in the nineties, but every, you know, it, it's, it's what, it's how the business is run. And Chuck Dixon's a writer. He's a professional writer. He takes gigs. So, and he's given, you know, a, you know, okay, here's your assignment. Here's the character we want you to do. You're really good with action. Go for it. And he makes the best of kind of a bad situation. <laughs> But I can imagine how disappointed he was after doing this the excellent Yesterday Sins arc, mm-hmm. where he gets to flesh out this character who's been kind of floating around the DC universe for decades and just go in depth with the with the motivations and such. And then it's like, hey, here, have him put on a suit of armor and beat up another guy in a suit of armor. Well, and it's also kind of sad. It's also kind of sad that this is the you know the last issue of Chuck Dixon, and it kind of feels shoehorned in. That they had to have the reveal of this character militia that's only been around for like a couple of issues yeah. of being Guy's supposedly dead, long lost brother. And, you know, I really like the setup uh, of Guy's family and background that Dixon did in the Yesterday's Sin story arc that kind of gets, well, not just kind of gets left hanging because of this. I mean,. We realize that his dad died, and he can't resolve issues with that, and his mom's still kind of a, well, just really not attentive to him, and is just kind of there. And now we get this 
Goofy reveal that his supposed supervillain enemy is his brother. I mean, it's very cliched, it's very 90s, but again, like Michael said, it was the 90s, and they were ch- chasing trends, and that's what they were doing. So I also find it hilarious that Mace apparently has gained a Jufro <laughs> in, in, in the time that he's been underground. Does this mean Seth Rogen would play him today? Oh, that would be so awesome. I would love to have Dennis Leary punch the hell out of Seth Rogen. Hey, guys, you want to go get some beers? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> That's all it would take. Uh, Lord. I got to say, though, I mean, I know that, that, that Sean, you said that you, you really appreciate uh, Mitch Bird's artwork. There's some really wonky anatomy going on throughout this this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it, the thing the thing is, it's all very stylized. It's not yeah. it's not the sort of uh, realistic stuff that we'd get over with over in the Superman books, or that we'd even yeah. get over in the Green Lantern books. Uh, and that's kind of been the case with Guy Gardner, uh, even from the Staten run. Yeah. The, the characters were all very cartoony and i think bird takes that sort of cartooniness but gives it a more amped up 90s feel it's weird because there it seems like all the male figures are you know modeled after masters of the universe figures Mm -hmm. with those two broad chests and the really kind of like stubby limbs but you know it's it's kind of weird because it almost it, despite all the 90isms it almost reminds me of black and white independent artwork from the 80s in certain well, cases that's uh, where a lot of these people a lot of these artists were coming from yeah. this is the thing that i think we have to take into account is that this is the post image era where the big two suddenly found themselves at, without a lot of their big artistic guns so they were grabbing anybody they could and most of those people were coming from the independent um the independent fields and not all of them were quite ready yet i'm looking at you dan vado <laughs> oh, oh the, good yeah, god that, yes just, that shame was on you. awful it was just terrible from word go i had to cover an issue of that for the uh, for the Trouble with Guys thing, and oh, Dan Vado, that really wasn't oh. good artwork. Uh, just just wait till you have to do uh, The Way of the Warrior. Oh, good luck. Lord. Yeah. yeah we, we were praising Gerard that. Jones five minutes ago. You won't be doing that with his Justice League run. Uh, well. I think I may be gay. <laughs> but I might be gay. Oh, oh poor Are Sidious. you gay, Ice? But you're not Ice. You're Ice Maiden. Uh, nice. Oh, my Lord. And I think this is as good a time as any to announce this uh, that uh, Tom and I will be going on the road with our two-man show, DC in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> I would pay money for that, sir. <laughs> good money for that to happen. Well, we once we dramatically about... recreate the entire 90s at DC Comics in, 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 in 90 minutes. <laughs> Well, we once talked about doing an episode of, of Use the Long Box where we were talking about this, all of those. Because, to be fair, DC did do a lot of good work in the 90s. They did oh, a lot uh, of especially towards the latter part of that decade. They did yeah. great. Yeah. These, a lot of these like, little short-term books, books that didn't last very long, but were just 
wonderfully risk-taking, cool little things like Cronus and Chase. And yeah, those are the first two that popped in my head, too. It was just even like, Even Young wow. Heroes in Love. I loved Young Heroes in Love. Yeah, that it, it's it's kind of funny because it's something that Shag and I have talked about in the past on Views as well, is that the 90s is really two different decades in terms of comic book storytelling. At the beginning, you had the, you know, Mar- uh, DC, uh, especially at DC Comics, you had DC slowly coming in to what was really making Marvel popular in the late 80s. And then they went crazy with that in like 1995. And when 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 we covered Underworld Unleashed, it was very apparent when you were re- when I read all those different crossover books. You know, all of the main characters were edgy. They all wore button downs and leather jackets, and they all had long hair. It's like there was a there was just a type that that had to happen. You know, this is this just 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 has to happen. Right, and then after Kingdom Come. I think DC took a step back and said, you know, we have the best writers in the business working for us right now. And that's when they really started focusing on story. And yeah, not all the stories are good because you have things like Circle of Fire, which wasn't all that good and was written by Brian K. Vaughn. And I really think fans of Why the Last Man should read that to see where he came from. Yeah. Um, so, but... Every here, band has its comeback rock, Mike. Yeah, and but here is where DC is like, okay, we're all in on this crap. So it's really hard, and it's ninety, and it really is nineteen ninety five. Ninety four is where it started, but it was like after Zero Hour is when DC went crazy for a while. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it had its Hal Jordan moment. <laughs> uh, best part of this issue for me, I have to say, is the letters column. Uh, the letters column as answered by Guy Gardner. That's that's been a trend of all the uh, all the uh, issues of Guy Gardner, and it's really fun to hear him just sometimes tear into people. It's it's and the fact I'm I'm assuming it's Kevin Dooley, so I'll give maybe Dooley some credit for this, but uh, he gets the voice of Guy Gardner down in these uh, letters columns. I'll give it you could that. be Eddie Berganza too, which that, would be kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> since since he was a, now the 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 the, uh, the thing about this um, this sort of uh, letters column for me is I think it I don't think Guy Gardner was probably getting all that many letters. No, no, nah, probably not. No, this, in, in all at, honesty, at this point in time, he his issues were were slumping from what I've heard, what I've read of uh, Bo Smith talking about it. Uh, before he came on, stuff was kind of slumping, and uh, with his uh, change in the book, you know, things bumped up, you know, because of his writing, and also because they turned him into a giant flesh Terminator 1000 with guns. Big guns out of his heads! Guns but, uh, everywhere. Kneecap guns. Doesn't matter. And I really appreciated Chuck Dixon's final words in the letter columns. Uh, next, the opening of a new chapter in the history is, of comics as Bo Smith takes over the writing towards of Guy Gardner. All the pathos, all the drama, all the mindless that you, the violence that you, the reader, have been clamoring for. See page after page of macho exclamations. See a man succumb to the deadline pressures beyond his ken. <laughs> 
And I think, you know, I think that succinctly describes, you know, what Bo Smith had to do. I mean, he had to come in with heavy deadlines and, and you know, they he brought... screwed him over on every everything he wanted to do. They're like, now nah, oh. you got to do this. Now nah, you got to do this. A... He did a great interview with Word Balloon where he talks pretty in depth about his run with Guy Gardner. Uh, and I, I felt bad for him. I really did. <laughs> Sean, you should really think about reaching out to him. I'm sure he'd be glad to talk to you. Oh yeah, well. I, he would. I would. He's I would, a very affable human being. That's that's what I've heard. I, I I've heard an interview. I've heard the interview that he did on another uh, Green Lantern podcast, mm-hmm. and he he seems like an incredibly nice guy. I've checked out his uh, website, the Flying Fist Ranch, and he's uh, he he hasn't really done that much writing after Guy Gardner. He did a bit for uh, IDW with like the Twenty Four book mm-hmm. and most of this stuff has been uh sort of uh working as an executive with mcfarland toys well but, he, he wrote Cobb a couple yeah. of years ago and that was an excellent excellent uh 80s era action movie done as a comic book with artwork by eduardo barreto it was an amazing series but yeah i, I would love to talk with uh I would love to talk with Bo Smith about this because I'd like to get his take on it because I really do like what he initially had set out after all this goes down for Guy, which, as Tom and I have talked before, involves punching Nazi dinosaurs, which is always, always awesome. There is nothing wrong with punching a Nazi dinosaurs in the nose. So, uh... That about it for this issue. Do we want to look at ads? Do you guys well, have? Uh, I, I only have a digital copy okay, of this well, out. We will we will skip the ads, no problem. Um, there's nothing. That's pimple cream. I'm looking at the first page. So, if that's the opener for it, I could care less. Uh, let's go ahead, and I will mention that the Green Lantern book has been reprinted. Uh, one of the few of this era to be reprinted. Of course, it was in the Emerald Dawn, or the Emerald Twilight trade paperback and the Green Lantern Emerald Twilight New Dawn trade paperback. Amazingly enough, this Guy Gardner issue has not been reprinted. Fancy that. I know, it's hard One to... One day it will be, because they're good... God knows they're reprinting everything else. Well, I mean, I... they reprinted Cap in his armor over two trade paperbacks. <laughs> you see, that's what we, should, we, we missed out on in the 90s. Guy in his armor versus Cap in his armor. Oh, the cross. With Booster Gold serving as referee in his armor. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Shame uh-huh. on you, Dan Vado. Shame on you. <laughs> well, uh, if that's all you guys have to say, that's all I have to say. Thank you guys for coming on. Uh, would you like to come on next week to finish up this sort of story arc? Uh, see Let me check this... my calendar. Let's yeah, see. I was about to say, uh, I um, think I can fit that in okay. this morning. I mean, next week. Okay. I mean, this morning. Lunch with the president. I'll call Barry up, tell him I gotta take care. You know, sorry, Barry, I gotta take care of something. Okay, an understanding guy. Don't you have yeah, some you... Uh, some sh- songs to to like do kick ass versions of at uh, karaoke there, Tom? <laughs> okay. Do you fit that? I love the fact that you do karaoke. <laughs> karaoke is fun as hell. I really wish I could be there because I want to hear you sing. Well, that... maybe next week when my friend Paul and my my friends Hillary and Angie join me, they might take some some footage. Nice. 
Well, that does it, folks, for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thank you both for coming on, and uh, we will see you next time around. Bye, everyone. Shame on you, Dan Vado. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot Libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Guys, just one second, okay? No okay. Problem. I got a point, but I just got to take one second because this all-water diet is beating up my kidneys. <laughs> I'll be back in just no a second. This is why I have a bucket and a mute button. <laughs> See, I love having a wife because, you know, prior to all these big recording times, I just come to have her come in here and self-catheterize me. So it's awesome. <laughs> I got a bag hanging over here. It's fun. Uh, that's and I go through outtake. Liberty Medical because they have the better cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. There's an outtake that's going to go at the end of the show. Oh, man. Uh, let me know if we're running okay, okay, along. Or... Okay, 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 okay. okay. I, th- I, th- I think we're doing good on this. Okay. okay I, don't, now, I don't know how much I'm... conversation the Guy Gardner issue. Yeah, the Guy Gardner will probably be yeah. a lot shorter. I mean, this is the big one, so. The point I was going to make. Three, two, one. Okay. Oh, I had my to God, myself. is this the 90s? Oh, my, yes. <laughs> oh, my Lord, this fucking God. He's it... a Crack armor! It, it, it gets even worse. Why in the world in the next issue does he, when he gets his ring power back, does he... He puts together the armor again! With the damn tubes on the back! The uh, uh, tubes! What the and fuck? the funny thing is, is that I don't blame Mitch Bird and I don't blame Chuck Dixon. <laughs> I mean, the, it's. I, I'm. I'm assuming they're going for a ridiculous sort of mecha, you know. Uh, mecha licka high. That that thing too, but it, it does licka. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> um, that, was, that was like three or four issues where it's like the, almost like the same pose guys in month after month, but in a different outfit. Hmm. Crack me the f- up because they're almost a. Parody. 
and I think I, I actually think that might be what it is. I actually think that the the that Chuck Dixon and the the artist Bird and Davis are actually parodying the ridiculous get-ups that we'd be getting in like the X titles and the sort of uh, image books and the Liefeld stuff. I think they're actually saying, "Oh, you want ridiculous? We'll give you ridiculous. Here you go." Guy in leather, a guy in a leather jacket with a black T-shirt with a big W on it for what the f ever, with spiky gloves and assless chaps, <laughs> assless leather chaps. He's not riding a horse at all, but he, <laughs> it's like chaps. it's like Magic Mike Guy Gardner. <laughs> oh God! Uh, uh, thank God I've never seen Magic Mike. Uh, oh Lord. Okay. All right. I'll bring it back in and we will start up our coverage of Guy Gardner number 19.